Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's Accent of Women, we bring you the second part of a speech delivered by world-renowned political activist, academic and author, Angela Davis. This event took place on January 23rd, 2020 at the University of New England as part of its annual Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. It was one of the last MLK events before lockdown. Also important context is that this event took place before the Capitol riots in 2021 and of course before the overturning of Roe v. Wade in 2022. As if there, as if all lives matter is in opposition to Black Lives Matter. And as if we are denied the opportunity to recognize that that democracy in this country is based on the presumption of a few standing in for the many. Uh, All people are created equal, but who's really created equal? Perhaps one can say, All men are created equal. Because we know that women were excluded from the very beginning, right? Um, But then we know that uh, not all men were included. So perhaps we could say, well, all white men um, are created equal. But then we know that the reference is not even to all white men. Uh, it, it, It actually is only to... Um, affluent white men. So from the very beginning, our presumptions of, 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 of generality that are um, inscribed in the Constitution actually refer to a very small minority. But on the other hand, We all know that if ever black lives were to truly matter in the world, that would be a sign that finally all lives matter. And so we should question why white is the subject of generalization and universalization. Black, Latinx, indigenous, Asian American always remain at the level of the particular. That which is not helpful in the production of the category women. But why do we assume, moreover, that disabled women are to be treated as a marginalized category? Especially, especially when we're speaking about violence. Disabled women have a 40% greater risk of intimate violence, uh, as the American Psychological Association has pointed out, especially with severe consequences than their non-disabled sisters. Why are trans women
especially if they are black trans women or trans women of color, why are they always dismissed and demeaned? Why can we not recognize that if we want to eradicate gender violence from our worlds, we have to address the conditions surrounding those who are most subject to violence. Intimate violence, stranger violence, economic violence, state violence. The Human Rights Campaign, which advocates for justice for LGBTQ communities, recently released a report entitled A National Epidemic, Fatal Anti-Transgender Violence in America in 1918. The overwhelming majority of trans women killed were women of color. I mentioned um, a book earlier uh, by Beth Ritchie, the sociologist, and the title of that book is Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence, and America's Prison Nation. Her research points to the pitfalls of assuming that the figure of the middle class, cis, heterosexual, white woman should stand in for all targets of gender violence. On the other hand, if one looks at black women, black trans women, their insights to be garnered that would otherwise be unavailable. I have been involved um, for many years in campaigns um, uh, against uh, the state violence that we know as imprisonment. Uh, campaigns against the, the prison, and not reformist campaigns, but abolitionist campaigns. And I frequently point out how our work was enhanced uh, uh, by um, the contributions of, 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 of trans prisoners who asked us to begin to address questions of, of the rights of trans people in prison. And out of that work came insights, not only regarding physical, psychological violence, but also ideological and epistemic violence. And we came to recognize that, that the prison, uh, among the work that it does, uh, it presumably works as a punishment apparatus, uh, but it is also an apparatus that ideologically produces and reproduces the gender binary. Of course, there are men's prisons, right? And then there are women's prisons, and we take that for granted. But what happens to those who don't necessarily identify in a straightforward way with that uh, gender binary? Prisons are gendering apparatuses. Prisons are gendering apparatuses. And so how does our view of 
gender violence change if we look at it from the vantage point of black women, indigenous women, um, uh, the first peoples of, 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 of this um, region are much more likely than any other group to be in prison. Because of the assumed privatization of the lives of middle-class white women, and the private sphere is assumed to be a haven of freedom. Uh, there have been a, a number of scholars, Catherine McKinnon and many others, who have examined these con contradictions uh, um, you know, between the public and the private, right? Uh, I mean, even our very important uh, um, constitutional uh, right to abortion based on Roe v. Wade comes from the, the, the uh, principle of the right to privacy. Uh, um, but we also have to ask, who has access to privacy? Uh, and these are the questions that we often don't raise. Uh, if abortion is um, guaranteed because of a woman's right to privacy um, between herself and her doctor, what about those women who have no doctors? Right? And who have to rely on government funds for medical care. So you see, uh, there's some, some, some major issues uh, here. But the point that I am trying to make is that uh, because, because of the assumption of, of um, privacy, because of what you might call the privatization of the lives of middle class women, because the private sphere is assumed to be a haven of freedom, then the repressive apparatus can be called upon to secure that freedom. I'm talking about the police and prisons. Uh, um, an analysis that doesn't explore the structural basis of violence can easily rely on carceral methods to address expressions of, of gender violence. So what I'm trying to do here is to propose a critique of what you might call carceral feminism. Have, are any of you familiar with carceral feminism? Okay. Well, um, it assumes that the the lives of women can be safeguarded uh, from uh, violence by relying, as I said before, on the police and on imprisonment. Uh, but we're talking about institutions of state violence that are supposed to be securing um, the lives of women who are suffering from other forms of violence as if there's no relationship between the violences. Uh, uh, and 
through this, this work and as a result of the contributions of, um, of abolition feminism, so I would suggest that, the, that carceral feminism, um, the, problem, the problems of carceral feminism are precisely addressed by abolition feminism. Feminism that uh, recognizes the interrelationships between the various uh, forms of violence and that acknowledges um, how, how ridiculous it is to assume that a violent institution such as the prison can solve problems of violence. And um, people who are sent to prison usually end up becoming more violent during their stay inside these institutions than, than less. How many of you have seen um, Dream Hampton's um, documentary series on, on uh, R. Kelly? No? Is it because we're in Maine? <laughs> I think it was shown on, on Lifetime, if anybody watches TV. You know, it's, a, it's very, very difficult to watch. It's very difficult to watch. But I think, finally, it begins to address some of these issues. You see, historically, what we have assumed is that you si simply send the perpetrators to prison and then you don't even have to think about the problem any longer. That is to say, if they do end up in, 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 in prison. Uh, so prisons are a place that, allows, that allow us to forget about actually solving the problems of violence. Um, um, and I, it was very difficult to watch, um, particularly because there were so many women uh, who um, had been targeted by R. Kelly. But it was also a look at the complex forces that pushed him in the direction of becoming such a monster. And I think that this is a period when we finally have to open our eyes and not try to forget about uh, 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 the, you know, such uh, issues as uh, sexual violence. Um, the journalist, um, Jim DeRogatis, who did an amazing amount of research with respect to uh, R. Kelly. I mean, the, the amazing thing is that it was known that R. Kelly was abusing young women for years and years and years, yet he, he continued to be embraced by the music community. He continued to do his work and he continued to put music out there and, and people were singing, I believe I can fly. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, I wanted to quote something that this uh, journalist said in doing all of this research. He said, the saddest fact I've learned is nobody matters less to our society 
than young black women. Nobody. As I move toward uh, the conclusion of my formal uh, presentation, I want to um, to gesture toward links between carcerality and policing on the one hand and gender violence and the permanence of community violence on the other. This is not simply an issue confronting us here in this country, in our homes, in our communities, uh, or throughout the country. It's a global issue. Gender violence is the most pandemic form of violence in the world. And as a matter of fact, uh, as, as we confront con the, the current uh, issues, uh, government shutdown, and I try not to mention the, the name of the occupant of, uh, current <laughs> occupant of 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, but, you know, all of this talk about building a wall is when, when many of the people who are trying to come to this country, who are trying to emigrate, are fleeing violence. Often violence that is directly related to uh, the, the work of US capitalists. Uh, And, and femicide uh, uh, in Central America. Uh, many of the immigrants are, are women and children who are fleeing gender violence. Uh, and, and the solution is a wall? So I would like us to think internationally, globally, uh, because We've learned how to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. And no matter who we are, if we happen to live in the United States of America, we live at the center of the universe. But that is not the case. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we suffer from our provincialism and not understanding forces in other parts of the world and not recognizing, as Dr. King did, that there's a great deal that we can learn from struggles that are unfolding in other parts of the world. I'm thinking about Brazil and the recent assassination of Marielle Franco, uh, who stood up against gender violence and racist police violence and against community violence in, in Rio de Janeiro. Leila Guven, who is in prison in Turkey, where she has been on a hunger strike for the last two months for speaking out on behalf of the Kurdish people. Uh, and for calling for an end to uh, Abdullah Öcalan, who is the, the, the leader of uh, the, the, the Kurdish movement. Uh, Razmia Odeh, a Palestinian-American activist 
who was previously subjected to horrendous forms of sexual violence by the Israeli military. She was deported from the US to Jordan. Uh, uh, she lived in Chicago for many years, uh, 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 by the way, uh, and, and was uh, uh, deported to, to Jordan. Um, if you're interested in her case, uh, read about it. It, it, it. it is very upsetting because this is a woman who was really dedicated to struggling for democracy, uh, but because she challenged um, the Israeli government and did organizing, especially in the Palestinian American community in Chicago, um, she was um, deported. And I don't know if any of you are aware of the fact that uh, that I was recently offered a human rights prize. <laughs> and, and several months after they told me that they were going to give me uh, this award, uh, they called me to tell me that they had rescinded it. And I keep asking myself, how is it that I end up at the center of major controversies like this? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I will say that um, this is a very exciting uh, moment uh, uh, because uh, so many people have spoken out uh, against the position of the board of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And let me say that um, that institution, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institution, is, is, what, is an institution that I want to protect. Uh, and um, my Sunday school teacher in Birmingham was the person who, for many, many years, pushed to create the Birmingham um, Civil Rights Institute. And my mother was one of the most avid volunteers uh, there. Uh, so I don't want to say anything that can be construed uh, to be in opposition uh, to uh, the institution. It is um, just that there were members of the board, and you know, oftentimes the board, board members of such organizations are the ones who represent uh, uh, the, um, the moneyed communities. <laughs> They're, they're placed on the board because they're expected to raise money for the organizations and they have no idea what it is they're doing. Uh, and, and so I think that um, that board had no idea that the response was going to be more than just a local response. Uh, and I cannot tell you how many letters and statements uh, I have uh, received. Uh, uh, those, uh, you may not all be aware of the controversy, but I, the, the reason why the, the award was withdrawn, uh, it has been said to me, is because of my support uh, for justice for Palestine. And my critique.
as I was saying, I have received letters and statements from individuals and organizations and huge numbers of, of Jewish organizations, including, uh, including most recently an organization of reconstructive rabbis. Uh, uh, and so I think this is a very exciting moment. Uh, 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 it's an exciting moment because I think we're finally beginning to recognize as, um, as Dr. King always emphasize that justice is indivisible. He said, I am not going to be concerned about justice for Negroes. I'm not only going to be concerned about justice for Negroes in the United States because I know that justice is indivisible and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Thank you. That was world-renowned political activist, academic and author Angela Davis speaking at the University of New England as part of its annual Martin Luther King Jr. celebration back in 2020. Both parts one and two of this speech are available as podcasts. But that's all we've got time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.